Heavenly Father, we are just grateful for the privilege to be alive today, to, Lord, to have a measure of health and blessing. But we would just pray in these next few moments that you would speak to us from the Holy Bible. I pray that you would anoint my voice. I pray that you would allow the people to hear the voice within the voice, that the Spirit of God would speak to us. And, Lord, you might capture our hearts afresh today with the very Word of God. So we bless you today, and we pray that your presence would always be welcome in Jesus' name. Anybody say it? Hey, give your neighbor a high five. Tell them we are glad you're here today, and you may be seated. Well, how many brought their Bible to church today? Let me see it this morning. Yeah, there you go. I want to encourage you to be not only a Bible carrier. How many know you can be a Bible toter, but not a Bible reader? Not enough just to have the old book on the nightstand. You need to get it in your heart. And the best way I know to do that is to have some disciplined pattern that you read every day. And I want to encourage you. We publish a little Bible guide. We've got some new ones out for November and December. It's a couple chapters a day. If you need one, lift your hand. We'll make sure we give you one. The ushers have a bunch for you, for your kids. I make sure my wife, my kids, everybody gets one when they come out every couple months. I read it myself. It's my pattern of Bible reading. We've just read the book of Ezra, the book of Hebrews. And uh, if you can read both chapters a day, great. If you want to just read one, I'd read the New Testament. But let me encourage you, everybody needs to be a Bible reader. It will just help you not just learn about God but it'll help you learn to know Him. I've been doing a series the last several weeks, probably conclude next week, called Unshakable. And the purpose of this series has been to help you have what I'm calling unshakable faith in uncertain times. And how many know there, there is a great deal of uncertainty in our world today? You don't, you don't have to be just minimally involved in our society to know that our world is in turmoil. It's not just America, it's the entire world, and hopefully this helps you because how many know if you have faith in God, you can face anything in the future? Let me say it again. If you've got faith in God, if you've got a relationship with God, if your hope is high in God, you can face whatever the future may bring you. Well, I'm going to start today with something kind of fun, a little game here. I've got a couple helpers. Give my helper Nick a big hand today. Have you had your heart checked lately? Not really. How, blood pressure, is it okay? Yeah. Oh, it's okay for sure. All right, here's what I want you to stand right here. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to just, we're going to play this game called Confusion, like you used to play when you were a kid, or maybe at your house y'all still play it. I'm not quite sure, but go ahead, put your arms out, and yeah, there you go. And I want you to just start spinning in a circle here while I'm, I'm talking, but you need to go a little bit faster, Nick. There you go. Can you spin it up just a little bit? And I want you to stay in that exact same center spot. Don't be moving around. There you go. Just keep moving. You're slowing down. Jeff, make sure that he keeps moving. Nick is a picture of America, and America is a confused nation. How many know that? Now, we're laughing right now, but this is what's happening to America. America is in a stupor. We think it's right for men to marry men and for women to marry women. We think government is God in America today, and I'm speaking very broadly in very broad terms today. We, uh, as America, our nation uh, believes it's okay to kill a million babies a year. Our nation believes we can get out of debt. Speed it up, Nick. That you can get out of debt... By printing more money, is that not the most absurd thing? Our nation believes God doesn't belong in school or public life. Our nation believes that everybody gets to decide what's right or wrong. And what's happening, every once in a while, America stops and opens her eyes. Nick, can you look my way, buddy? Can you, I'm over here. Can you, can you kind of make your way with this way? This is kind of, you need a helper there. You need somebody to, to help you get on the right path here, don't you? You did a good job. You did a good job. He's a godly young man. No, wait just a second. I want to talk to you just a minute. You okay? 
All right. A little dizzy. All right. Well, that's exactly the way our nation is today. It's a little dizzy. And most people think dizzy is normal. You know, as he was making his way across the stage, what he needed was somebody to help him get on the right track. If I was where he's needing to go or wanting to go, how many know America has a direction she needs to go? America needs someone to help her get on the right track. And I speak not just at the upper levels of our nation or of our government. I'm speaking it in local levels. I'm speaking your friends, the people in your world. Let's bring it home right now. Every one of us has a circle of influence, and every one of us know people that are on the right track. Uh, we know people that are on the wrong track, and it's those people that are on the wrong track. We need to help them get back on the right track. So whether my circle of influence is a school classroom whether my circle of influence is a ball team, whether it's a business, whether it's a company, the neighborhood. Maybe you're the neighborhood mom that just lets kids hang out after school. There's a circle of influence that is filled with people that are on the wrong track, that are going the wrong direction, that are headed towards a ditch. And how many know God wants us, He wants you and I to help these people back on the right track? Give Nick a big hand. You did a good job and your helper did a good job. We just witnessed what was this past week in this election, what can only be called historic. There is a sense in America, we as the American people in our political process, realize that America is going the wrong direction. We realize that something is wrong with America. And that's not because of, of, of uh, the color of a person's skin. It's not because of their gender. I mean, oh, listen, whether it's a man or a woman, we need somebody godly at the helm whether that is in our state, whether it's in our county, in our churches, in your family, in the White House. We need godly people that are leading our nation in the right pathway. Uh, the Bible says in Proverbs 14, 34, doing what is right makes a nation great. Doing what is right. And there was an under, it was like a churning that was going on. For the first time in my life, I got involved in politics this year. Other than voting, I began to do things because I was aware that the answers is more, more than just what goes on in our church. The answers have to be more than just Sunday school, but it's you and I taking the right track and helping people get on the right track. As we look across America, there were over 900 state offices, I understand, that had a change from one party to the other. There were in the state of Iowa, they had Supreme Court justices, which I think is a great idea that somehow the people got to vote on them. And those uh, Supreme Court justices had voted for same-sex marriage in Iowa. And the people of Iowa stood up and said, we don't believe that's the right way to go. Now, listen, I can love someone and disagree with them if they're on the right track. How many know what I just said is not the language of hate. It is the language of love, because if you're on the wrong track, somebody needs to let you know. See, the, the Southern Democrats basically wiped off the map in this election. Here in our local, the county here in, in Texas, Bowie County, for the first time in history, four Republicans elected to office. Now, listen, this is bigger, though, than D or R. It's bigger than I. It's bigger than L. It's bigger than the Green Party. It's bigger than the write-in candidate. What the real need for America is, is for a spiritual awakening to come to our nation. Now, hear me now. America needs a spiritual awakening. We certainly need people that are on the right track to lead us in our local churches, in our businesses, in our positions of government. We need a spiritual awakening in America. We need as Americans, first, you and I, that we would turn from our wicked ways. How many know it's what the Bible says? It's the key to getting off the wrong track and onto the right track is when we turn from our wicked ways and begin to go God's ways. Because the Bible clearly tells us doing what is right makes a nation great. 
And how many know there is a right and a wrong way? It's not just theories that we practice, but the Bible is very clear to us. There's such a thing as absolute truth. There's right and there's wrong. And if you're on the wrong path, the Bible says sin will bring disgrace to any people. Sin will bring disgrace to any people. And how many know in many respects our nation is a nation under disgrace? But I'm here to tell you today as a man of God who believes in the Bible, God is a God of hope and God can turn things around. God can fix what's broken in America today. God can rise, raise people up all across this great nation and get them on the right pathway and turn our nation back to God. But our answers have to be more than just what goes on in Washington, what goes on in Austin, and what goes on in Little Rock. The answers to turning your America around lies with you. See, you have a sphere of influence. Whether you're the principal of the school, whether you're teaching a class, whether you're the neighborhood mom, whether you coach a group of kids, or whether you just have guys you play golf with, I want to tell you, you have a sphere of influence. And God wants you in your sphere to be what I'm going to call this morning in the message, a reformer. To be like Ezra of old. In this series, I've been looking at biblical characters and seeing how the qualities of their life help them through unshakable faith make a difference in this world. And I want to tell you, Ezra is a man that was, that, that was able to literally turn a nation around. He was able to go in. He was a priest. He went in the time after in, in the times of captivity, and I'll talk to you about this. And God literally used this man to get the nation that was off track and get them on track. And that's what I want to speak to you about this morning, about this word reform through the life of a man called Ezra. I want you to turn your Bibles to Ezra chapter 7. We'll look at verse 6. And there's two, two big things I want to show you this morning. The reason that Ezra was so effective in what he did was, number one, because he had the Word of God. And number two, he had the heart of God. Can you say that with me? The Word of God and the heart of God. Now, these were two very distinct things. Now, I've got a very unusual close today that I think is going to impact you greatly. But it was not just the Word of God. He had the heart of God. Now, this word that I'm using this morning, the word reform or reformer, let me give you a definition. To reform means to correct. It means to bring up to code. It means to make over, to rebuild, to reconstruct. And I want you to see the lives of people that surround you. They may be in your own home. They may be in your workplace. They may be far away that you, your role for them is to pray, but people need to be rebuilt, reconstructed, remade, renovated, repaired, reworked. They need to be transformed. They need to be returned to the right path because the right path leads to life and the wrong path leads to destruction. And God's goal, listen, is to use you. It's to use the person seated next to you to make a difference in the world where you are. Now, we're going to explore this today. Let me give you just a brief history of, of Israel. Israel was a nation when we explore the life of Ezra today, which we just read in our Bible guide, and we're starting now the book of Nehemiah, two of my favorite little Old Testament books. They're very similar in what they're doing. Both Ezra and Nehemiah are rebuilding a nation. Well, here's what happened in the book of Ezra. The nation had found themselves in a ditch. Beginning with Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, there was a promise and a warning. The promise was, is if they would stay on the right path, God would bless them. But if the nation of Israel got off, off the right and on the wrong path, they were going to experience God's judgment. And if you look from Moses following, you will see that there's a cycle like this. The people walk with God and they have things are good in their life. They get away from God and things fall apart. There's destruction. Well, soon, finally, God said, I've had enough. 
And after a period of time, through about 700 years after Moses, through both the Assyrians first and then the Babylonians, they came and they literally took the Israelites out of their homeland and they made them slaves in captivity. But the great news is, listen, how many know if God has put His love on you, He does not leave you in a ditch? The great news is, though God may chastise you, though God may judge you, or even judge a nation, He will not leave us in the ditch if we'll turn our hearts back to God. And God made a wonderful promise in the prophet Jeremiah. He said, you're only going to be in this ditch of 70 years. And at the end of 70 years, I'm going to bring you back to your homeland. Because you remember, several hundred years from that point in time, Jesus Christ was going to be born through this Jewish race. And God was very concerned that the people were living godly, holy lives, that they were aligned with the Word of God and living as the people of God. No different today. Well, lo and behold, those 70 years were up, and God kept His Word. And He did it in the most interesting way. God used a pagan king named Cyrus. And here's something I want you to know. You may have people in some levels of authority over your life that are not believing people. God can even use that person to advance His kingdom, and they don't even know what's going on. But in Cyrus's case, he was a pagan king, and God touched his heart and said, I want you to allow my people to go back to rebuild. And that's exactly what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about. They're going back, and they're rebuilding their homeland. The first thing they did when they got back was not build their own houses. The first thing they did is they built the altar of God. It was the place of sacrifice. You know, we dedicate the front of the church here as an altar. Now, it may just look like carpet and wood to you, but it is the designated place to meet with God. That's why when we have prayer after service, that's why people will line up across the front because we realize we need God to be in the middle of that time of connection with Him. Are you with me this morning? They built the altar. Then they built the temple. And then about 50-some years later, Ezra goes. Now think about this. You would think that if, if you made a mistake and it got you in a real hard, destructive spot, you wouldn't make it again, right? Wrong. They're just like we are. And they had gotten away from God, and they were in this ditch. And now they st they're out of the ditch, but then in Ezra's day, 50 years later, they're in the same mess again. And God used this one man to turn this nation back to Him. Now, what I want you to see, though, is Ezra was not just some, some choice that is very distinct from you. Ezra is a person, I believe, just like you and I. Ezra is a person that had the favor of God on his life, the hand of God. If I were to tell you... For example, if I were to say, I believe the Lord wants me to be the president of the country. Well, you would laugh, and after you laughed, then people would say, he has no experience in politics, and he has no money, and he has no connections. But guess what? If God wants you to do something, God can make a way. God can raise you up out of obscurity. He can raise you up with nothing, and he can put you in a place of great influence if the favor of God is on your life. Now listen, the favor of God cannot be bought or earned, but the favor of God, I believe, is available to all of us. Now Ezra had this, and that's the beginning place, because this was not just a man that went to school and made a difference. This was a man that had the favor of God because he had the Word of God and the heart of God. And God married those two together, and he changed a nation. Chapter 7, verse 6, look at this great favor. Ezra went up from Babylonia, or Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which is simply a way of saying he knew his Bible. All they had was the Old Testament, the Torah, the law of God. He knew his Bible in and out, and it wasn't just information in his head, but it was flowing out of his life. He knew that book, and notice now the Bible says this, this incredibly encouraging word. The king granted him all he asked. 
This pagan king gave this godly man everything he asked for. And why does it say this? For the hand of the Lord... Say it again. It was the hand of the Lord that was upon him. Now, I want to tell you this, friend. If you have the hand of the Lord on your life, everything will be better. If you have the hand of the Lord on your life, your business will prosper. If the hand of the Lord is on your family, your marriage will be strong. Your kids will grow in the right way. If the hand of the Lord is on your life, listen, you'll overcome sickness. You'll overcome disease. You'll have joy and you'll have peace. When the rest of the world falls apart, you will be cradled in the hand of God. How many know the favor of God is that ability of God for God just to bless us? But God's blessing for Ezra was not just for him. This favor was for a purpose in his life. But he had to have the favor. And this is critical. Because you may want to do something for God. You may have this idea that you'd like to reform the ball team, the club, the school, or whatever. But you cannot do it without the favor of God on your life. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord. And that's exactly what we need. We need this favor. Now, I want to ask you this question. Why did Ezra have such favor? Do you think some people are just lucky? Are they just born on the right side of the tracks? Or is it something that happens in the heart of this man, the heart of a woman, that can get them in a position so God can say, now I can trust you? You see, because when he went to the... Can you imagine asking someone of unlimited resource and influence if they were to tell you, what do you want? Now, come on, I've got a lot of wants. How about you? That was about a half-hearted yes. Listen, I have wants covering everything in my life. I have wants. I'd like some water in front of my duck blind right now. I'd like about two foot of water in front of my duck blind. I'd like my yard landscaped. Come on. I'd like to pay off my car. I'd like this. I'd like. I've got all those things. I'd like a new pair of shoes. How, how about you? You you understand what I'm talking about? Well, I've got all those things in my life, but I've got some bigger things. Listen, I want to see all. I want to see all my kids serving the Lord in ministry in some way. I want to see you making an incredible difference in your world. I want to see your marriage strong. I want to see our church in three services and maybe four and maybe five and making a huge impact in our city. I want us to be able to just write a church. Listen, they need a building in Haiti is what they need. They need a half a million dollars just to get a building up in the air that will withstand. I'd love for us to just be able to write a check. Wouldn't that be a great thing? And I'd love you to be so blessed that you can be the one that does it because this church does not make money. All we do is spend money. So when God blesses you, then we're able to do things together as the kingdom. I pray that God would just bless you in your, uh, beyond your wildest imagination. If, you've got, if, you, if you are believing for a business, I would pray that your business would prosper so much that you franchise it out and you never have a financial worry in your life. That's what I dream about when I talk about people of great favor. Well, Nehemiah had that. And literally, this is what happened. He went to the king and the king said this to him. You can take anybody you want to to go with you. Anybody. You just pick your dream team and they're yours. You pick it. I'm going to give you gold and silver. I'm going to load you up with gold and silver. Anything you want, you buy along the way. I'm even going to give you a letter so that if you don't have enough of anything you need, they're going to give it to you wherever you go. And that sounds pretty good. How about this? I'm going to make sure that the priests and Levites never have to pay taxes again. Now, how many know that's a good deal? That is favor. And I'm telling you, he had favor not on accident. But I believe he had favor because he had the Word of God that was in his life and he had the heart of God so he could accomplish the purpose of God. Now, let's look at these two things we're looking at, the Word of God and the heart of God. Now, chapter 7, verse 10, this is, I believe, the pivotal scripture for the whole book. The Bible says Ezra set his heart to do three things. Number one, it was to study the law of the Lord. And what was the second thing? 
to do it. How many know it's not enough just to know it? How many know you've got to do it? So he studied the law of the Lord. He did it. And then what else did he do? He taught the statues and rules in Israel, which means he didn't just keep it to himself. His Bible study was not just for himself. It was to be a vehicle of influence for other people in the world that was around him. Now, listen, other translation says he devoted himself. Other translation says he was determined to study and obey. Another one said he worked hard to study and obey God's Word. Let me ask you this. Do you work hard to study and obey God's Word? I want to ask you, is the Bible that you have just something that sits on the family table or is it just sit on the lamp stand, you know, by your, 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 your nightstand? Is the Bible just the place you go to get historical information and facts? Or is the Bible to you the living Word of God that can transform your life? You see, this is what Ezra had. And Ezra gave himself. I want to tell you, friend, if you want a happier marriage, if you want a better business, if you want more peace in your heart, if you want more success in your life, be someone who reads the Word of God, someone who studies it, and someone who does it, because you will open the door for favor. Now, I want to tell you something that I did not know when I was in kind of the religious stage of my life where I just went to church because somebody obligated me to go because I was in trouble. I want to tell you something that I have learned since I have begun to be a God seeker, someone that I am drawn to. See, many of you might have come to this church and your worship experience in church was like mine was as a boy. I just thought we went to church and sang songs about God. I didn't know that worship could be an opportunity to literally engage my Father in heaven. See, where I'm not singing about Him, I'm singing to Him. And it's different when God ceases to just be the man upstairs and He becomes my God, my Father, and as Jesus said, my friend. I'm not talking about anything spooky, mystical, or weird, but I'm talking to you about the reality of walking with God and allowing His Word to transform your heart. The Bible is more than facts and information, though true. The Bible is more is understood not just by subjects and verbs and adjectives. The Bible is a spiritual book that has power in it. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 4.12. The New Century Version says, God's Word is alive... It's alive. It's working. What is that? It's alive and it's working. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It can cut all the way into us. What does that mean? That means the Bible has a way to pierce my attitudes and my values and my priorities and to change me on the inside and make me into the person God wants me to be. The Bible has the ability just like a, a shovel. I was in my, my garden yesterday digging sweet potatoes and, you know, just kind of digging in there and pulling out these sweet potatoes. Well, the Bible has an ability to get in your heart and God to use it to dig out bad attitudes, to dig out unbelief, to dig out sin, to dig out worry, to dig out the lies that are inside you. Listen, if you will just open that book and take some time with God in a very deliberate way, I do it every day of my life and if I miss a day, I pick it up the next day, it will make a difference in your life. You know, the Bible says of itself in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it is a command that we are not to be conformed to this world, but to be what? How are you transformed? Renewing of your mind. You know that. Are you doing it? 
See, our mind, this word transformed is, is the word in biology that you study the term metamorphosis. And metamorphosis is a caterpillar spinning a cocoon and flying out with wings. Though we understand it, and though you've as a child taken scissors and cut it to see the process and studied it, we've taken the wonder away because it is something supernatural that God does. And God can do the same thing in your life. God took me from just a... You would not have known me as a wild 19-year-old. I was a wild, worldly person. And when I got saved, I want to tell you, I got really saved. It wasn't any of this. I don't want anybody knowing or seeing I'm a Christian. Listen, I just began going full... As worldly as I was, I got that on fire for Jesus. And I want to tell you what, I was in the Navy, I got saved in the Navy, and we would have to do these stupid watches in the middle of the night. My job was to walk around the halls and make sure nobody was smoking pot and behaving. Are you with me today? That was my job. And I would just take that little Gideon Bible, and that night I might read First Timothy, and Second Timothy, and Titus. Not because anybody told me to, but because I was growing hungrier and hungrier for the Word of God. See, and I want to tell you, God has that for all of us. And Ezra had this. But here's the deal, because this is a message to you this morning about purpose. God wants you to do something with what He's given you. God wants you to be a reformer, friend. He wants you to help people that are on the wrong track get on the right track. He wants to use you to help broken marriages get fixed. He wants to use you to help homes that are out of whack, where kids are in rebellion. Listen, He wants to use you to help that kid. You that are teenagers, you may have teenage friends that are in rebellion against their parents. God wants to use you to help your rebellious friend forgive your parents, come on, and get back on the right track. See, we are reformers, and it starts with the Word of God. But here's something that's really big, and this is going to be a different kind of close this morning, so I want you to stay with me. I want you to go to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra not only had the Word of God, but what else did he have? The heart of God. Can you say it with me? The heart of God. Now, what I mean by that is Ezra saw people the way God sees them. How do you see people? How do you see them? Are they in the way when you're trying to get somewhere and there's a line and it's stopped in your car or in the grocery store? Are they in your way? Are they a bother? How do you see them? Let me tell you how Ezra saw his friends. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, mind you, here we are in the story. Ezra has just arrived in the city of Jerusalem. They have a, a temple, a church building, but the hearts of the people are not where they need to be. The Jewish leaders came to me and said, Many of the people of Israel have not kept themselves separate. Everybody say separate. See, this is a holy life from the other people living in the land. They have taken up the detestable. I'd underline that. Let me know what the Bible will often call detestable, the world calls entertainment. They give ratings to TV shows, stars, and the Bible would call it detestable. And repulsive. An abomination. But they get a five-star rating by some other person that's lost. This is not judgmental. This is just reading it the way that it is. I mean, no, you, cannot, you cannot expect anything from a lost person but the behavior of a lost person. See, just like you and I were once, we're blinded by sin and don't know any better. The men of Israel have married women from these people, and they've taken them as wives for their son. And the holy race has become what? 
polluted by these mixed marriages. This is what got them in trouble in the first place. They married these good-looking pagan girls, but the problem is these pagan girls led them into idolatry. Now, it got so bad that they would take their little babies and they would put them in this god Molech's mouth. It was this stone idol that they heated super hot and it became an offering to a false god. Now, how many know if children are the heritage of the Lord and, and, and they're a blessing and they're His reward, how could you go from that truth to put that baby on that altar? It's because somebody blinded you with a lie and deception. And what God was concerned about was keeping His holy people holy because Christ was coming. But how many know He wants to keep us holy because Christ is coming? Are you with me this morning? He wants us to live pure lives. Grace is not an excuse for sin. See, grace just helps you get back away from sin. The holy race is polluted. Now, here's what I want you to see, verse 3, because this is where his heart shines through. See, when I heard this, I tore my coat and I tore my shirt. What was that symbolic of? It was an outward act of, 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 of contrition, of craziness, of what's going on around me. When I heard that our Federal Reserve was going to pump $700 billion, just turn the printing presses on, knowing that it's going to devalue your money by 20%, I threw something at the television. I didn't break it. It's an act like that that's not geared towards money, but towards eternal spiritual things. I pulled hair from my head and beard. What would you do if your son or your daughter was on the front page of the newspaper and they had just murdered someone? You wouldn't say, hey, change the channel. I'll have coffee, I'll have coffee made in my car. You wouldn't say that. You would go, God, what happened? What went wrong? What can I do? Something would break. I saw in the picture this week. A young man that went to our church years ago when he was a child and he's in jail today. What does it do to your heart? He sat down and he was utterly shocked. In verse 4, Then all who trembled at the Word of God. Now this is what I am asking that God might do in my heart. Would you let me tremble at your words when I read about eternal things, about the consequences of sin, about right and about wrong, could the fear of God so rest upon me? Come on. I trembled. Other people, all who trembled at the words of... They came and they sat with me because of the outrage committed by the returned exiles. I sat there utterly appalled. I stood up from where I sat in mourning with my clothes torn. When was the last time you mourned over something? More than likely, you're like me. It was over a death. A couple weeks ago, our little dog, little Boston, got run over by a car. And, and I didn't realize how much I love this little dog. He was supposed to be my, my Rebecca's doggy. But when I got the phone call, my, my, uh, my mouth just started trembling. Because I began to think about it, I'm going to have to tell my little girl it was on a Wednesday night at church. And I just could barely hold back my teeth. I didn't realize how much I, of my heart was in that little dog. And I told Linnell, and Rebecca knew something was wrong because she saw me with tears in my eyes, but I wouldn't tell her. 
And I can remember I went home and my neighbor had picked up that little dog and gave that little dog to me in two bags. And I couldn't even say anything to the lady that picked it up. I went to, I went to her door and I just said, thank, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I went home and I went by the pond and, and, and the ground was so hard it had to take a pickaxe. And I'm digging a hole with this little dog and I'm crying. I'm saying, Boston, why did you run in front of that car? Now that was a dog. And then I can remember telling my daughter, I couldn't even talk on the phone to tell Beth anything. I try to have a tender and a sensitive heart. I think that's a good thing. I don't think it's a... Listen, you can be tough. If you want to fight, I'll fight you. I've taken... You know, I've taken... I'll, I'll take care of myself. I'd rather not. But I, I have a tender heart. I think a man should have a tender heart and still be a man. I think... I think we've got the role, wrong role models going on. And I thought about how I mourned over that little dog. And I've been asking myself since I've been reading through Nehemiah and Ezra, why don't I mourn like that over people? Why, why am I not affected like that? When I look in the newspaper and I see this boy that went through our Sunday school classes, am I hardened? I, I, maybe, I just feel like my heart's maybe that shallow sometimes. I stood there. I stood up from where I sat in mourning with my clothes. I fell to my knees. I lifted my hands to the Lord God. And look at chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made this confession, he was weeping and lying face down on the ground in front of the temple. This is not private. I'll often lay on this altar here on the ground when you're not here. But he did this publicly. This was a public building. And can you imagine this man, this grown man, Weeping. And this incredible thing happened. The Bible says a very large crowd of people from Israel, men, women, and children, gathered and wept bitterly with him. See, he's not been preaching yet. He's not been going around saying, you're wrong. This is not Sunday. This is just when he was confronted with it. He's the heart of God, the burden of God that was in his life just began to spill over. Would you like to have a, a heart like that? I've been praying, God help me. I, I want to do more in life than, come on, have a decent life and, and, and duck hunt. And eat. I, I, I want God to be more real. I want my life to break with the things that break the heart of God. Because here's something I know. My heart can't be filled with so many things. Our hearts are filled with everything from multiple sports and activities and CDs and iPhones and DVDs and hunting and shopping and sales and this and all that. And before we know it, we don't have enough passion in our heart, come on, to be broken for the things that, that break the heart of God. Because it is the hearts of these people that are eternal. And you know what happened? It's pretty incredible. If you kept reading the story, everyone begins to tremble at the Word of God. It's like the Holy Spirit's presence, and that's what we need. The Holy Spirit responded not to his, 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 the skills as an order, but to his heart as a man that the Word of God just flowed out of the anointing that was upon his life. And it began to have phenomenal influence. 
people around began to tremble and they began to gather. And they, listen, said, you know what? We're putting away the sinfulness of their life. We're going to put this nation back on track with God. And, and what they needed, they needed a man who had the Word of God and a man who had the heart of God, a woman. They needed a young person. They needed somebody. See, and not just in position of, I, I wish it was as easy as my vote last Tuesday. That's not enough. That's a good step, and it's a step in the right direction. But we need men and women of God that have the burden of God for the people of God. Come on, someone say praise the Lord this morning. I want to close this way. I want to show you a little video clip of one of the fathers in the faith in America. His name is David Wilkerson, and he's talking about this very subject. Just listen to these words. And I look at the whole religious scene today, and all I see are the inventions and ministries of man and flesh. It's mostly powerless. It has no impact on the world. And I see more of the world coming into the church and impacting the church rather than the church impacting the world. I see the music taking over the house of God. I see entertainment taking over the house of God. An obsession with entertainment in God's house, a hatred of correction and a hatred of reproof. Nobody wants to hear it anymore. Whatever happened to anguish in the house of God? Whatever happened to anguish in the ministry? It's a word you don't hear in this pampered age. You don't hear it. Anguish means extreme pain and distress. The emotion so stirred that it becomes painful, acute, deeply felt inner pain because of conditions about you, in you or around you. Anguish, deep pain, deep sorrow, agony of God's heart. We've held on to our religious rhetoric and our revival talk, but we've become so passive all true passion is born out of anguish. All true passion for Christ comes out of a baptism of anguish. You search the scripture and you'll find that when God determined to recover a ruined situation, He would share His own anguish for what God saw happening to His church and to His people. And he would find a praying man, and he would take that man and literally baptize him in anguish. You find it in the book of Nehemiah. Jerusalem is in ruins. How is God going to deal with this? How is God going to restore the ruin? Now, folks, look at me. Nehemiah was not a preacher. He was a career man. But this was a praying man. And God found a man who would not just have a flash of emotion, not just some great sudden burst of concern and then let it die. He said, no, I broke down and I wept and I mourned and I fasted. And then I began to pray night and day. Why didn't these other men, why didn't they have an answer? Why didn't God use them in restoration? Why didn't they have a word? Because there was no sign of anguish. No weeping. Not a word of prayer. It's all ruin. Does it matter to you today? Does it matter to you at all? That God's spiritual Jerusalem, the church, is now married to the world? 
that there's such a coldness sweeping the land. Closer than that, does it matter about the Jerusalem that's in our own hearts? The sign of ruin that's slowly draining spiritual power and passion, blind to lukewarmness, blind to the mixture that's creeping in. That's all the devil wants to do is get the fight out of you and kill it. So you won't labor in prayer anymore. You won't weep before God anymore. You can sit and watch television and your family go to hell. Let me ask you, is what I just said convicted you at all? I want you to just keep the lights down just a minute. And I want to ask in these closing minutes, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? I realize that my heart is shallow when it comes to this. I, I wish I had a formula to give you. I'll tell you something I'm doing. There's an abandoned church on state line. The congregation sold it, moved out, grown up with bushes. Right across the street, there's a, a liquor store and there's a nightclub. And I've just been going and sitting in the parking lot of that church and praying. It is as viable a prophetic picture as I know of what seems to be the irrelevancy of the church to America's condition. And I'm asking God to give me more than emotion. I don't want to just make myself cry. But I want to have the heart of God towards people, towards Christians, and towards those that don't yet know Him. Would you just bow your heads and if you'd like to, you could even sleep and slip on your knee. It's just a way of saying, Holy Spirit. I want this to get into me. Maybe the starting place is the Word of God. It doesn't have its place in you. Maybe God wants to go deeper with the Word of God, more than just a chapter or two. It's not volume of the Word, it's hunger. Maybe that's the starting place. Maybe you need to ask God now, make me hungry and thirsty for you. Didn't Jesus say it? Those that hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Is there something you need to repent from today? Have you made sin your friend? Is there some place where evil or wickedness are entertained in your world and conscience doesn't even bother you any longer? Would you just ask God to help you today to turn that friend into an enemy? For, see it for what it is. It's a robber of life. It's a quencher of the Holy Spirit in you. Would you ask God to help you? overcome that have a desire to fight it because sin will harden your heart sin will make you cold sin will make you critical and bitter it will like kinking a garden hose it will stop the flow of God what is God saying to you friends we've got one life to live what are you doing with it Just have your way, Lord, in me. I want you to just ask the Lord.
If I'm to love you with all my heart, then show me how to do it. Change my heart, Lord. Change my values. Change my priorities. Change my attitudes. Change what I see with my eyes. Give me your heart for this world. I want you to keep your head bowed a moment and your eyes closed. This message has been for Christians. This message has been for Christians, people that have a great responsibility to help get people back on the right path, to restore a fallen brother, to reach out to someone that doesn't know Christ as Savior. But this next prayer is for you who are not right with God, as I was. Nineteen years ago, I had gone to church all my life, but that doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is that you have personally received Christ as your Savior, that you are a follower of Christ. I just knew about God and called when I needed. There's more than that. Maybe you're here today and as I am, you're alive. There's breath in you. But my friend, one thing is for certain, one day I'm going to die and one day you're going to die. And the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Then you will answer to God for your life. And the great tragedy is our sin is what gets us in trouble with God. And the common bond that unites us all as we were all born as sinners into this world. We've all done and said things that displease God. And the consequences of that sin are eternal. There is judgment. Heaven is real and hell is real. And God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. Friend, Jesus Christ has made a way of escape for you and for me and everyone in this room. This way of escape is offered to you. He'll never force His way in your life. But Jesus Christ beckons to you through my words today to follow Him, that you would believe in Him. Jesus Himself said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that's Christ, that whoever would believe in Him, who would trust Him, who would put their faith in Him, who would begin to follow Him, turning from their old life to those people He gave the wonderful gift of eternal life. I wonder if you'd like that gift today. I wonder if you're here this morning and say, Pastor, I need to get right with God. I don't want to leave this church the same way I came in. I don't want to be uncertain when it comes to eternity. I want to get right with God and I, I want to do it now. Listen, friend, God's here. He's just using me to talk to you. Much like somebody talked to me 30 years ago. This may be the first time you've ever made a step like this to Christ. The first time you've ever said, God, would you forgive me and save me and come into my life. And the first time you've committed your heart to Christ. The first time you've chosen to turn from your ways and follow Him. It'd be wonderful if you made that step today. Or maybe you're here today and you've gotten away from God. You didn't mean to do it. Don't know how it happened. It just did. But you're here and you want to get back right with God today. Today is your day, friend. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, pray for me. I want to get right with God. I want you to just lift your hand real high. Nobody looking around. God bless you, dear. I see your hand. I see two hands over here. I see one in the back there. I see one right here. God bless you. Just keep your hand lifted just a minute. Anybody else? I see your hand, dear. Yeah, I see your hand. Anybody else? I want to get right with God today. I see your hand in the back, pal. I see your hand in the back. I see another one. God bless you. God bless you very much. Now, listen, I want everybody to look at me right now. Here's where we're going to close this service today. The Holy Spirit here is here in this place. And for many of you, you're about to have an encounter with God in prayer before you go. In just a minute, we're going to begin to, to sing and worship the Lord. I'm going to have you stand. And as you stand, what's going to happen is this. We're going to begin to sing. All of us are going to sing a chorus through a time or two. But our prayer team is going to come around the altar. And I'm going to invite you to come. 
First, I'm going to ask you to come that lifted your hand and say, I want to get right with God. That was the first step. Now I want you to go to someone and pray with them. I want you to tell another person, uh, uh, let them pray for you. Let them answer your questions and make a step to Jesus Christ. Don't just keep it private. Make this step today and let them help you. Let them give you something that's going to help you know how to live this Christian life. But we're going to open this altar call to everyone today because I know many of you here today, God spoke something to you in this message in a very deep way and you need to humble yourself. You need to make a step to the front and you need to pray with another person about what God was speaking to you about. And lastly, I know there's many people here today that's got some real needs. You're going to face some pressures when you go back out in this world. You've got something coming up this week that you need God to help you with. And I'm going to tell you, friend, there's power that's released when people pray. God hears your prayer, and it's something big that happens when another person joins with you in prayer. We'd love to pray for you, and people will be here as long as you need. So, Pastor Nick, why don't you just begin to sing? I want you to stand right now. Our prayer team is just going to come and make their way around the altar. And you that lifted your hand to come to Christ, I want you to come right now. I want you to come. Give them a big hand as they're coming right now. And I just want to open this altar to everyone that's here today. You, you have prayer needs today. There's needs in your life. There's struggles in your life. You just come right now. Someone will pray for you. Just come on up. We've got people in these altars. Let somebody stand with you. When you go, you make sure you remember Haiti at the back door. You give to them. We'll send that. There's a meal in our cafe immediately afterwards. You can hang out with some friends. But you come if you need some prayer right now. Don't miss this before you go. God bless you. Lord, I give you my heart. Ooh, I give you my soul.